You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so Pastor Damon did intend to be here this morning. However, he's still got kind of this little uh, incessant cough that uh, is preventing him from being able to speak out loud for any length of time. So uh, we could be praying for him so that he will be here next Sunday. So you're stuck with me today again, uh, but I think it will be profitable. And uh, oh, thank you. Somebody loves me. I love. <laughs> I w- okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> All right, now how am I going to live with myself? Go home and Cindy will say, take out the trash. And I go, these hands are anointed, baby. <laughs> all right, an announcement. <laughs> Ladies, there's a, uh, all the women of the fellowship are invited to attend a very special evening this Wednesday night. It is entitled, All I Want for Christmas is More of Jesus. What a great title. The evening will consist of worship, a short devotional, fellowship, and refreshments. You can get more information at the table in the fellowship hall after service, and we encourage all the ladies to visit that table. Check it out, and I hope you could be here. For those of you who are without a Bible, if you would raise your hand, there are men that are going to come down the aisle, and if you need a Bible, they will put one in your hand, uh, and you'll need one to follow along as I teach this morning. And that uh, Bible you may keep as a gift from us to you, and uh, hope that it's profitable. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. Continuing Paul's theme that he began back in chapter 5 regarding harmony. You'll recall they talked about harmony between God and man, harmony within the church. And then our last time together uh, where I spoke out of Ephesians 5 there at the end, harmony between husbands and wives. And now he's going to turn his attention to harmony within your family, specifically looking at the relationships between parents and children, which is a very important topic. So let's just pray for a moment, make sure our hearts are ready to receive what God might speak to us this morning. Well, Father, we're thankful to be in your presence, thankful to have an opportunity to have worshiped you this morning. And Father, we pray that one of the effects of that worship would be to focus our attention and our affection upon you and to take our eyes off of ourselves. We pray that as we do that, that our hearts would be softened, to be open to what you would speak to us this morning, that there would be words of encouragement that we would receive gladly, words of correction that we would receive with just as much gladness and heed those corrections. And then, Father, whatever you might speak individually concerning how we might bring harmony into our own home, we pray that you'd speak that to us. And Father... We also want to pray for our dear senior pastor and ask that you would bring a complete and total healing to his body so that he might be with us next Sunday. And so, Lord, we commit all these things to you, and we do so in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 6, the first five verses, if you're a note taker, I would title this study, Harmony in Your Family. And that's important because as we look around in our society today, it's marked by a very dysfunctional society. And I would suggest, and I think you would agree, that there are very few homes that are characterized by harmony. In other words, where there's contentment, there's joy, there's peace, uh, not just between a mom and a dad, but between parents and children. But instead, we look, and everywhere we see division, uh, 
antagonism. We see rebellion and discord. And the pandemic over the last couple of years certainly hasn't helped matters, especially in families. I hope that you are not a victim of this, but I know that in my experience, in my own family, extended family, and many of you found that it was impossible to find unity because people had different opinions about how we ought to handle the pandemic. And so rather than just looking at different viewpoints and coming to an agreement to disagree, agreeably, people literally divided. And I know people who have not spoken to their parents in two years because they have a different opinion about how COVID should have happened, happened or been handled. Uh, parents who won't talk to their children because they don't like the way that they handled the pandemic. And again, we see dysfunction and discord everywhere. We see record numbers of husbands and wives divorcing, parents who abandon their children, and children who rebel against their parents. And everyone, it would seem, from the local government to federal government to the United Nations to Dr. Phil, have tried to mend the divisions that we see in families, but with no real lasting effect. We'll enter in the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who presents his solution to address disharmony in human relationships, and specifically the relationship between parents and children and children and parents. And he does so by looking at the very core issue of all discord in human relationships, and that is a broken relationship with God. In other words, if our relationship with God is broken, there is no way that we're going to have good and healthy relationships with the people around us. This relationship has to be restored so that we might have good and healthy relationships with the people around us. That is, we're never going to patch up our human relationships until we first have a right relationship with God. And that comes only by surrendering ourselves and submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, who then by His Holy Spirit empowers us. Think about the promise of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5, 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, excuse me. Where the Apostle Paul writes <clears throat> that we are a new creation of Christ. Old things passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And then the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit and power of God, that created the universe by a word. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives within each and every one of us as Christians to empower us and to change our desires that we might want to and then have the power to change the relationships that we have in our homes to create the harmony that God intended the home to be. And Paul's instructions here are very, very important. And I would suggest that you and I as believers need godly instruction on how to bring harmony in the home. In other words, these are important issues because so many of us grew up in a broken home without a father or without a mother, or in some cases, neither a father or mother. And therefore, we did not have a good and godly example of how to be a parent. And now we find ourselves with children trying to do something that we never saw manifest in our life, and our only hope, really, is to look at the instruction of Scripture and then, empowered by the Spirit, put those things into practice that we might then create harmony in our home. Now, again, for those of you in a broken, that grew up in a broken home like I did, I'm not saying that your parent, whether it's your father or mother who is raising you by themselves, did not try to give you a good upbringing. I'm sure they did. But the reality is that very few people know what it looks like to have harmony in their home. 
And for the single parent, it is even more difficult because they're doing the job of two people. The single mom is doing her job as a mother, but also the job of the absentee father. The the single father doing his job plus the job of the absentee mother. And the reality is that we need Christ in order to bring harmony into our homes. Now, the instructions today are dealing with parents, and I want to encourage you, if you sit here today as a single mom or a single dad, don't tune out, don't be discouraged, because the Lord can and will give you all that you need by the power of the Spirit and through the fellowship of the saints represented in the body of Christ, all the tools you need to raise your children in a good and a godly fashion so that they can grow up to be the man or the woman of God that they have been called to be. In other words, if you are a single mom with boys, uh, you're disqualified in one sense from knowing how to raise a boy into a man because you're a woman. But we have groups like Trail Life Ministries here where good and godly men have volunteered their time to help young boys and especially young boys who don't have a godly role model, a male role model at home, to know what it looks like to be a strong and a compassionate godly man. We have ministries like Heritage Girls that does the same thing with young ladies. So if you as a single father are wondering about how in the world do I raise a little girl? How do I walk her through puberty and all that clueless about how to do any of that? We have good and godly women in our fellowship equipped to come alongside and help you. So I want you to be encouraged if you find yourself in a place as a single parent, God has given you the power through his spirit. He's given you the instruction of this word. And he's given you a family here at Calvary Chapel that will provide all the things you need to raise your daughter, to raise your sons, to be the men and the women of God that he's called them to be. So be encouraged this morning. Well, turning to our text, I want to look at the first three verses there in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul begins dealing with this child-parent relationship by speaking to children. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. That, and here's the promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul begins speaking to children for this reason. You recall the context of the letters that as we ended chapter 5, Paul was talking about the harmony between a husband and wife. That beautiful harmony that's created in a marriage relationship can very easily be broken with the arrival of children in that marriage relationship. In other words, and you parents know this to be true, that when children come along, they take an awful lot of time and attention, (laughs) especially as infants. Oh, they're completely self-consumed. They want to be fed when they want to be fed. They want to be changed when they want to be changed. They want their, your attention when you, you know, when they want the attention. There is nothing about other-centeredness at all about a newborn child. And the point is that the attention that a mom and a dad used to give to each other, the time, the affection, all that now has been robbed in a sense, and it's directed to a child. Well, not only that, but you recognize that children of all ages from infancy to teenagers have their own will. (laughs) You've probably noticed that, right? In other words, parents, you've decided this is the direction we're going as a family. Child 14 says, no, I'm not, right? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) they have their own will and they're expressing it. That brings division. We got to remember that children are all born sinners just like we were. 
And it takes an awful lot of time and attention from a mom and a dad invested in the raising of that child to work out the old nature and work the nature of Christ in. And again, it robs from the relationship between a husband and wife. Parents sometimes get confused about the priority of their affections. Here's the biblical model. Number one, my affection is for Jesus Christ. King of kings, Lord of lords, my God and my savior. He is the one I, I put at the, at the pinnacle of my affection in my heart. Those who are married, your spouse takes the second position. And then if you have children, your children come after your affection for your spouse. And the reason God designed it that way is that a marriage is supposed to last for a lifetime. If we do our job well as parents, our, ch- ch- our children grow up and then they leave the house and you're left just a husband and wife again right? For the rest of your life. That's the second priority. And there is God first, then your spouse, then your children. But oftentimes children, because they are demanding and fathers and mothers can be confused, begin to put more and more affection on their children rather on each other. And what happens is after the last child leaves, the parents look at each other and they recognize we're just roommates. There's no real passion and love in our relationship. And so the second highest incident of divorce is in the first five years after the last child leaves. So moms and dads, don't get confused. Children come after your love one for another. Well, all of those reasons and many, many more can bring discord and destroy the harmony in our families. And so Paul is going to make it very simple. He's going to start with children. He's going to say, here's how you create and how you can help maintain harmony in the home. He has one commandment, obey your parents. In other words, it's not like a 14-point program that you have to take a, you know, a class at MJC and buy four textbooks and read 3,000 pages of information and do a course in psychology and one in, in sociology or whatever. No, no, it's just very simple. Children, obey your parents. And then he gives three reasons that, we ought to, or that children ought to obey their parents. Verse 1, he says, because it's the right thing to do. In other words, in the natural order of things, it's just the right thing to do. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Secondly, he says, you obey your parents because God commanded it. Well, that pretty much settles it. (laughs) But just in case it doesn't, number three, he says to children, obedience will bring a blessing to your life. Well, let's look at those in detail because as parents, we want to understand why we ask our children to obey. As children, we want you to know why you should obey. And for those of you who don't have your own children or your children have grown and gone, it's great instruction so that you might help other people with their children when asked to or be involved in ministries like I mentioned before where you get to help to bring up children in the ways of the Lord. Well, number one, Paul says that obedience is required because it's the right thing to do. Very simply, he's appealing to the natural order that God has woven into creation. That is, he reminds children, listen, you didn't bring your parents into this world. (laughs) No, they brought you into this world. In other words, it wasn't like the baby just grew out of a sunflower plant. No, a mommy and a daddy produced a child, and that child is born as an infant to two adult parents. Paul's reminding the child, listen, your mommy and daddy, they have lived a whole lot longer than you have. They have a whole lot more life experience. They have more experience in the Word, more experience in Christ. They know things that you don't know. They discern things that you can't discern. Therefore, child, you should obey your parents because they know more about how to navigate life than you do. Now, it should be self-evident, but I'm speaking in California, (laughs) 
where if you look at public policy regarding child rearing and especially child behavior in schools, you will find that oftentimes they neglect the parent and somehow think that the child is fully equipped at six years old to make decisions about their life. That is simply not true. (laughs) No, children should obey their parents because their parents know better. So I'll illustrate it this way. I cannot tell you the number of times as our three children grew up that Sean or Siobhan or Kelly would bring some new friend that they met at school home after school. And they would want them to come and play at our home. And then, of course, that child would want uh, our, our kids to go play at their home. But mommy and daddy having some life experience, you know, through observation of people and behavior and with the discernment of the Holy Spirit, would recognize that something wasn't quite right. Something a little fishy here. And then as you hear about the home life from this new friend, you're knowing it's being confirmed. No, their home is not a healthy environment. In fact, it's probably a dangerous environment. And so our kids would be so upset when we would say, your friend can come and play at our house, but you can't play at their house or stay over the night at their house. And the first few times that we put those limitations on our children, you would have thought that we had just incarcerated them at the Supermax prison in Colorado, where they're in a cell 23 hours a day, get one hour a day to see sunlight. The rest of the time, they're looking at stainless steel. But then after a period of time, they came to recognize as they saw those friends and their friends' home life deteriorate and blow up, they recognized, hey, mom and dad know what they're doing. So they began to trust our judgment. Well, let me bring it a little closer to home. When I was 11 years old, my poor mom (laughs) was saddled with raising four very energetic boys. I mean, literally, you could have probably hooked up an electrode to the four of us and and powered the lights of the city of Modesto. I mean, we just, we were just running all the time. Four boys all by herself. My dad and mom divorced, my dad absentee, and no male influence at all in our lives. Well, my mom did her best, but I remember coming home in sixth grade and asking my mom if I could go with my best friend, James, to San Felipe, Mexico, uh, over the spring break. Now, you may not know where San Felipe, Mexico is, so I'm going to tell you. It's on the inland coast of Baja, on the Sea of Cortez there, 250 miles from the uh, U.S. border, 450 miles from where I lived in Santa Barbara. Well, my mom said, I don't know James. I don't know his mom. No, you are not going to Mexico to a foreign country in the middle of nowhere where, by the way, there are no phones, right? And there weren't in 1972. Actually, there was one at the market, but you had to stand in line, pay for it, and hope you could make an international call. In any event, I begged and I begged and I begged and I begged, and my poor mom, single mom, working full time, no child support, no help, finally I break her down and she says, fine, go to Mexico. So spring break rolls around, and I jump in that little VW camper van, my best buddy James. We're giggling and happy and excited as we make the way down to Mexico, which isn't fast in a Volkswagen van with 36 horsepower. But nonetheless, we finally reach San Felipe two and a half or three days later. We get there, we set up camp, and immediately, and I'm talking immediately, his mother disappears. Like, What? <laughs> We were on our own for the next week to find food to eat, right? (laughs) To keep ourselves out of trouble and entertained, right? And to kind of figure out how to navigate life in a foreign country. 
turned out her purpose and plan for going to Mexico was to hook up. <laughs> uh, she's a very attractive young lady, and uh, she got a lot of attention down there. And so every night she was with different men, dancing and doing whatever she was doing. Show up sometime four or five in the morning, fall asleep in a drunken heap, you know, in the van. And then the next morning we'd try to like, hey, what are we going to have for food and, you know, whatever. And she couldn't care less. At the end of the week, it's Saturday. I know we're going to be home Sunday night, so we're going to need to leave Saturday <laughs> to make it back to Santa Barbara. She wakes up and I say, uh, excuse me, Mrs. Henderson, um, shouldn't we be packing up to go home? She looks at me through glazed eyes and says, I really like it here. I think I'm going to stay. <laughs> I said, uh, how am I supposed to get home? So an adult woman looks at me. I turned 12 during spring break while we were in Mexico. She looks at me and says, well, why didn't you hitchhike? Thank you, right? Thank you for being adults, <laughs> right? This woman suggested to a 12-year-old that he ought to hitchhike from San Felipe, Mexico, somehow across the border with no identification, no passport, and get back to Santa Barbara safely and securely and somehow nourished, right? And so I did. I hitchhiked <laughs> in 1972, <laughs> through the deserts of Mexico and Southern California, all the way back home to Santa Barbara. I learned an important lesson. Parents know more about life than children. It should be self-evident, but today psychologist and popular theory says, no, no, cater to the needs of your children and the wants of the children, their whims or whatever. They want to be a whatever, you let them be a whatever. You want to, they want to, you know, uh, have surgery, then let them have surgery. You want to do, I mean, it's ridiculous. But the apostle Paul isn't confused. He reminds us children should obey their parents because it's the right thing to do because mommies and daddies are better equipped by their experience in life and Christian mommies and daddies by the power of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and God's word to navigate life than their children are. Number two, Paul says, obedience is commanded. That is in addition to obeying our parents just because it is the right thing to do. Paul reminds us, listen, this is a commandment of God. And Paul's quoting out of both Exodus and Deuteronomy. Let me just read you the verse out of Deuteronomy 20, verse 12. Where through Moses, God says, honor your father and your mother. And then listen to the promise that your days may be long upon the land in which the Lord your God is giving you. Honor here, as it's written in the original text, was that to be more than just obedience. In other words, it's more than just to say yes when you're supposed to say yes and go in the field and harvest when you're told to go and harvest or, you know, don't back, don't back talk mom and dad when they tell you not to back talk. No, here, um, honor means to live in such a way as a child as to bring your parents into a good and a positive light. In other words, conduct yourself as a child in a way that brings honor to your family rather than shame and dishonor. And again, not only when your mom and dad are present, but even more so when they're not present, that your speech, your attitude, your behavior would bring honor on the family. Let me illustrate it this way. In the Old Testament, one of the great patriarchs, of course, is Jacob, who we know is the, uh, the progenitor, the father of the 12 sons, his 12 sons, who became the fathers of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. You look at those 12 boys and you find that there were some that brought great honor to their father Jacob and others who brought great shame and dishonor. 
For example, Joseph, throughout his life, from a time he was a young man, all the way until his death, whether in good times or bad, he acted with great integrity, great honesty, and always behaved in such a way as to bring honor to his father, Jacob. But not all of Jacob's sons did that. I think of, for example, Reuben, the firstborn, who should have been the one to get the blessing and the birthright, but he voided that because he slept with one of his father's concubines, the mother of some of his brothers and sisters. Then there was Simeon and Levi who were angry because their sister had been raped. And rather than take out their vengeance on the perpetrator, they massacred all of the men in the city in which he lived, innocent people. Then we find at the end of his life, Jacob, as he's inspired by the Spirit, and you can read about it in the last chapters of Genesis, he then, as he ministers to each of his children, he gives Joseph a double portion because of the great honor that Joseph had brought to his name and his family. But to Reuben and to Levi and to Simeon, there was only a curse. Here's the point. Children should obey their parents because God said so, and God said so because it brings honor to your family. Number three, Paul says, obedience brings blessing. And again, if these first two reasons for being obedient don't motivate a child, surely the promise of blessing should. Look at verses two and three. He says, honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live your life or live long on the earth. Now there in Ephesians chapter six, verse three, at the end of the sentence where it says earth, you might underline the word earth or circle it and make a note of it for this reason. Paul's quoting out of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, he changes a word so that the application is not limited to the people of Israel, but it's expanded to Jew and Gentiles who are now part of the body of Christ. In Exodus, it says that you may live long in the land, the land that your Lord God is giving you. In other words, it's a promise to the Old Testament people of Israel and the land, the promised land that God gave them. But Paul changes it here in verse three, that you may live long on the earth, not just the promised land, not just Israel, but he goes pole to pole. In other words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul recognizes that God's promise is now extended to all of God's children, Jew and Gentile life, who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, part of this thing called the church, the body of Christ. And he's telling you, if you as a child obey your mom and dad, God will bless you in the earth. In other words, not just in Israel, but throughout the whole world. Well, I think it's important that having made that statement, that obedience brings a blessing, we need to understand the context. That is, it's not a magic formula that means that we'll be protected from all of the consequences of living in a fallen world. No, I think all of us know a precious child of God who was obedient to a mother and father, really a model child, but then died at an early age of cancer or some serious disease. Well, it would be very wrong and unbiblical and really blasphemous to God to somehow twist Exodus and Deuteronomy and Ephesians to mean that obedience always brings blessing. Ergo, a child that got cancer somehow must have been disobedient. No, that would be incorrect. And Pastor Damien talked on that a couple of weeks back when he was teaching in John chapter 9, 
where the disciples with Jesus were going through Jerusalem saw a beggar born blind and the disciples questioned, Rabbi, was this man born blind because his parents sinned or he sinned? Jesus' response, neither. But for the glory of God, he was born this way. In other words, he was born blind, not because of any sin or disobedience, not on the part of his parents or himself, but rather for an opportunity for Jesus to touch him and bring healing that he might then be a sign to the unbelieving people of Israel. So here's the point. When Paul calls us to obey, children to obey their parents, what he's communicating is that when we walk in obedience to our parents, we're going to escape a whole, <clears throat> a whole lot of sin and danger in life just because we're walking in obedience. Conversely, that child who is always disobeying, staying out beyond their curfew, playing with people they're not supposed to play with, going to places their parents told them not to go to, puts themselves in harm's way. In other words, those sinful choices, that disobedience, puts them in places where the incidents of being hurt or harmed are much, much greater. In effect, what Paul is doing here is reminding us of a principle found living in this fallen world. That in general, sin will always rob us of contentment, of peace and joy and safety, whereas obedience, whether to our parents or God, will always enrich us. Again, not a, not a guarantee, right? But again, it positions us for God's blessing. Now, one other point I want to make before I move on to parents, and that is this. As parents, part of the reason we want our children to obey and the instruction for children to obey their parents is that we are ultimately teaching our children how to walk with God. In other words, it's a whole lot easier to obey a parent, a mommy or a daddy, that you can see with your natural eyes and hear with your natural ears than it is to obey our heavenly father that we cannot see with our natural eyes or hear with our natural ears. In other words, teaching children to obey prepares them for a life that once they're a mature adult, they can simply turn to the Lord's word and when it says, do this, don't do that, they obey the word of God even though they cannot see their heavenly father because they know that just as obeying their earthly parents brought a blessing, much more obeying God is sure to bring them a blessing in life. And so children can help bring harmony to a family by obeying their parents. Well, now we move to the parents, beginning in verse 4, where Paul says, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, notice that Paul addresses fathers specifically. In other words, he understands there's a mommy and a daddy in a, in a home that produced a child, but he's going to deal with fathers specifically here. Now, I'm going to make a little caveat, and that is if you are here as a single mom, this responsibility is going to fall to you because that father's absent. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our study, you can trust that God will give you the power and the wisdom and the resources to do both the job of the father and the mother in your home. So the instruction, he says, I'm going to address fathers first because the father has the primary responsibility for the well-being of the family. In other words, more often than not, as goes the father whether for good or bad, so goes the family. One of the greatest pieces of advice I ever received as a young pastor from an older pastor was minister to men. 
He said, disciple men, if you win the father, you win the family. In other words, it, if the father's going to follow the Lord and come to church and plug in and become a part of a church, he's going to bring the wife and the kids with him. Where so often if the father's not involved and it's only the mother trying to live that spiritual life, then the kids have an excuse because dad's not going, right? And all of a sudden it's just mom coming to church because she's the only one really committed. And while the kids should be there, they're following their father's example. So Paul says, men, we're going to begin with you. Now, this is important because I have heard, unfortunately, some Christian men say that the responsibility of raising children is the job solely of the wife. My job is to bring home the bacon, pay for the food, put clothes on the kids, put money in their college funds or whatever. Your job is to raise the kids. And that is simply not the case. It is a shared responsibility, and the primary responsibility falls on the shoulders of the father. Now, again, we recognize that in a home where maybe the father's working, the mom's a stay-at-home mom, well, the mom's going to have more contact with the children, but that does not mean that the father abdicates his, his role as the leader in that household. No, what it means is that you need to manage and oversee your household, your wife and your children, and to lead them into developing good and godly spiritual lives by both teaching and example. It also means that when discipline is required, corrective discipline, that it falls to you as the father, don't abdicate that role and make it the responsibility of the wife. Now listen, if you do not take an active role in raising your kids, that is certainly your choice. But I guarantee that you are going to have trouble. We have to look no further than one of the great heroes of the faith, King David himself. King David, for all of the great things that he did and all the great things that he was, a giant slayer, uh, the, the deliverer of Israel from the Philistines, right? Uh, the great psalmist of Israel, for all of that, he was a terrible father. And I say that with biblical authority. He was a terrible father. If you don't believe me, let me illustrate. First of all, I set a very poor example to his children. He violated the scripture, and in the Pentateuch, we are told that kings were not to multiply wives. And David did so anyway, taking on wife after wife to feed his flesh. Then he lived an immoral lifestyle. It wasn't enough to have six or seven wives. He saw another one, somebody else's wife. And so he arranged to have her too and had her husband killed. Then finally, he was absolutely a failure when it came to disciplining his own children. By way of example, you remember that in the Old Testament, we read of David's oldest son, Amnon, becoming infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. Apparently, she was quite a looker, and he could not think of being without her. And rather than ask for a hand in marriage, he took her and he raped her. Now, I encourage you, you go back and read the account. And look at David's response. Silence. David doesn't do anything. David doesn't say anything. David doesn't deal with the situation in part because he was compromised in his own integrity, having taken another man's wife and had her husband killed. Nonetheless, his job as a father was to deal with that situation, and he did not. And because he did not, Tamar's half-brother, Absalom, waited two full years to see if his dad would do anything about it. Would there be consequences? Would he deal with it? Would he say anything? Would he, would, 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 he, would he require anything at all of Amnon? Nothing. 
And so Absalom takes matters into his own hands and he murders his brother, Amnon, and then escapes to a foreign country from David. And if you thought that was bad, it only gets worse. Because a couple of years later, they begged, some of David's servants begged to have David bring Absalom back. And he brings him back, but he doesn't speak to him. He doesn't set up any parameters. He doesn't address the murder of his brother. He doesn't address anything. He just lets him live scot-free. And so Absalom begins then to take the hearts of the people because David had pampered him and overlooked his sin and transgression all of which led to tragic results for the entire nation, not just David's family, but the whole nation. Because Absalom then supplants David in a rebellion to become king. David and his followers are driven into the wilderness. A civil war follows in which tens of thousands of people lose their lives. And then ultimately Absalom, whom David tried to pamper, David didn't want to discipline, Absalom has killed himself. It's a great lesson for us that as fathers, we must deal with our children. And when it comes to discipline, we cannot abdicate that. It's our job. And so it's vitally important that we pay attention to Paul's good and godly and practical instruction for creating and maintaining harmony in the home. And it begins, dads, with taking care of business. Now, notice that Paul says in verse 4, as a instruction... Fathers, don't or do not provoke your children to wrath. In other words, here's practical instruction about how to be a good and a godly father. And he begins with a do not rather than a do. And I think in part because many of us as fathers have failed in this area. In other words, we have provoked our children to wrath. We have done things to cause them to feel like they're not being listened to, that they're being overlooked, that they're that they're being taken advantage of, that we're not te- uh, dealing with them with equity. And so fa- Paul begins by saying, listen, these are the things, father, uh, uh, fathers, that you should not do. Do not provoke your children to wrath. You might wonder what we might do to provoke a child to wrath. Well, let me give you some examples. And I know this because I've probably done them, and you may have also. Never place unreasonable demands on your children. In other words, recognize your child and the context of who they are. At four years old, you cannot expect them uh, to get a paper route to help support the family and buy food. I mean, that's just not fair, right? Or, or, to, or to expect them to somehow have, you know, master the entirety of Scripture and be able to quote chapter and verse, whatever. No, they're four years old. <laughs> so don't put unreasonable demands on them, because if you do, it will provoke them to wrath. Following that, don't establish petty rules. In other words, every rule should have a reason. You don't just create rules to create rules, right? Just because you want the bed made in a certain way, you know, because you learned that in the military, it's got to be tucked, you've got to be able to, you know, put a quarter on it and hit the bed and have the quarter blop up or whatever. Hey, great, wait for boot camp. But if they made their bed <laughs> and the t- everything's tucked in and clean, okay. It, it, you don't have to put unreasonable rules on them. If you have more than one child, certainly do not show favoritism to one over another. That is the surest way to drive a child away. And then don't blame them for their failures and at the same time never find anything to find praiseworthy in their life. Don't be inconsistent or unfair in your discipline and how you meet it out. In other words, if you have more than one child, they all are disciplined in the same way. To show favoritism over one and discipline this one but not that one. This one gets away with something, this one doesn't. 
that's going to create or that will provoke your children to wrath. And then certainly don't make promises that you don't intend to keep. In other words, if you promise something to your child, make sure that you intend to keep it. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, do not ignore them, nor fail to take interest in the things that they're involved in. In other words, whatever your child is interested in, even as a little child, right? They're, they're coloring, they're drawing, uh, they're, you know, there's little fantasy stories they make about their horses or whatever, or as they grow up, you know, their sports or their dance or their theater, whatever they're interested in, you make sure that you're interested in it also. Now, you may never be the, the, you know, at that same level of excitement that they are about something, but nonetheless, because they're excited about it, you should be excited about it. Well, all of these behaviors, if you practice them, will produce or provoke wrath in your child. Well, what do we do then? I mean, how do we, how do we not provoke wrath? Okay, well, in a parallel scripture in Colossians, where Paul is giving similar instruction, he gives a little more that might help us. In Colossians 3.20, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Same thing we have in Ephesians. But then he also adds, lest they be discouraged. Oh, okay, I can, I can get that. In other words, if provoking my child, right, brings discouragement, then on the other hand, encouraging my child should bring, right, uh, encouraging my child should bring, bring about a, a good relationship and a healthy relationship. Well, here's, here's Paul's point. You and I, if you've noticed, live in a very scary world. I would not suggest you let your children watch the evening news. <laughs> uh, bad idea. You know, at the end of 30 minutes of national news, you'll find them hiding, shaking, and weeping under their bed. Now, I'm being, you know, dramatic about that. But the reality is it's a scary world. And if all they get is that, that just that, that, that constant stream of how wicked and evil the world is, they're going to be frightened and never, ever be able to have confidence that they will be able to do anything in life of value. In fact, I would say most children today grow up with a lot of insecurity and fear. The point is that our children need encouragement from their father and their mother, but especially their father on a regular basis that you could build them up so that they might be confident to face this scary world. Because the reality is that as you encourage your children in the word of God and in the power of God, there is nothing that this world can offer that would bring fear to the heart of a child of God who is standing secure in their faith in Christ. And so as parents, and especially fathers, our job is to encourage children so that they might be able to grow into the mature men and women God has called them to be and to go out into a very scary world with hope and excitement and confidence knowing that with the gospel of Christ, they can live a different life and they can change the world. Well, friends, what that means is as fathers, we need to look for opportunities to encourage our children. So let me just give you a couple things to think about. Number one, we need to praise them when they do what is right. In other words, it's so easy to point out what they do wrong. Look instead for opportunities to affirm what they do is right and praise them for it. Then, secondly, make spending time with your child a priority in your life. Now, we recognize there's a whole lot of things going on that demand our attention, but your children need to understand that they are a priority in your heart. 
In fact, make it a point that if they're playing a baseball game, whether it's, you know, <clears throat> T-ball at four years old, or whether they're opening the starting pitcher in college, or whether your child's doing a piano recital or a dance recital or whatever, unless heaven and earth has to be moved for you to get there, you make sure that you are there and participating and then applauding them for their effort and encouraging them for doing their best. Another way you can encourage your children, speak well of them, and especially in front of others. In other words, if you're at a parent-child teacher's meeting and there is some praiseworthy thing about your child, make sure to speak it publicly to the teacher. Oh boy, that does a whole lot for your child because now you have spoken highly of them to somebody they respect, somebody that they, they look to, right, as a, as a leader. Use it as an opportunity at family gatherings to speak highly of and to exalt your children in the hearing of your uncles and aunts and siblings and parents. And again, as your children hear you talking them up, it does something encouraging. It does something good. It does something to help them to grow and to be confident in who they are in Christ because they understand that you as their father recognize the good things that they've done. I think of how God does that with us. Right? So often, you know, our opinion of people that we read in the scripture can be very tainted. I think of a, a, a revelation uh, when I heard Pastor Damien cover this just recently uh, and how in the New Testament, <clears throat> the New Testament writers describe Lot, and I quote, as that righteous man. And I'm thinking, Lot? <laughs> I remember Lot. The guy that chose with his flesh rather than following the spirit, the guy that, that moved into Sodom and Gomorrah, the guy that compromised himself, the, the guy that, the guy that, right? How does the father look at him? Lot, that righteous man. Huh. In other words, God's always looking for an opportunity as our Heavenly Father to give us that attaboy, that a girl when we do what is right. How much more then should you and I make sure as, as parents that we do the same thing for our kids? Bottom line, make sure your children know that they are more important to you than your job, your hobbies, your favorite sport team, television, and other people. Second only to your spouse, your wife. And if you're involved in ministry, and especially pastors, I would encourage you, you need to make sure that your children know they are more important to you than your congregation. And I say that with all sincerity and brokenness because as a professor at a Bible college for six years, I saw a lot of young men and women coming through that Bible college who were questioning whether their faith was even real because their mother and father at home who were viewed by their congregations as good and godly pastor and pastor's wife at home were just horrific in the treatment and neglect of their children. And it drove those kids away from their faith in Christ. And so we need to make sure that our kids know that they are a priority in our life and they are important to us. Well, friends, obviously there's a balance. I don't get to stay home and play with my kids all day, much as I'd like to. I got to go to work, got to earn an income so we can pay the mortgage, put food on the table, get new clothes for those rapidly growing children, pay for the little league, pay for the dance ourselves. We get it, right? There's all sorts of things that we have to do. Nonetheless, what Paul is communicating here is we need to make sure that as fathers, we pursue <clears throat> his instructions and make sure that our, that our children understand that they are important to us always. Let me illustrate or give you one example or illustration that you dads might like to put into practice if you're not already doing it. As our kids were growing up, both the boys and our daughter, 
we would make it a point, I would on a monthly basis just show up at their school on a random day, check them out during lunch, and take them to wherever they wanted to go to lunch. Got to go to In-N-Out Burger, let's do it. Let's go to Sunny's Barbecue, we're there, right? I mean, Taco Bell, whatever you want. And what it did was it communicated to them how important they were to me as a father and Cindy as a mother. That we would take the time out of our schedule to go to their school, check them out of the school, right? Take them to lunch where they want to go and then bring them back, right? Have a great time together. And by the way, all their friends are like, what? I didn't, my mom doesn't, my dad doesn't, right? And in the eyes of those other children, you're exalting your child. In other words, their, their, their esteem is growing because, man, your parents are, wow, my, my mom would never do that. My dad would never do that. But it means so much to a little guy or a little gal that you would take the time to do that. Siobhan and I used to do daughter-daddy-daughter dates. I didn't say that right. Daddy-daughter dates. Or we try to get as many Ds in there as possible. A delightful daddy-daughter donut date. Or when Siobhan wanted to bring her friend along, it was a delightful daddy-daughter double donut date. (laughs) Right? But here's the point. Dads, instruction you need to, to, to hear and put into practice. By taking your daughter on a date you are teaching her what to expect from that future man that's going to pursue her. In other words, when I would come home from work to take Siobhan out for a date, I didn't, you know, kind of drive in the driveway and just lean on the horn, you know. And then just expect her to show up, you know. No, I, I turn off the car, go to the door, knock on the door as if I'm, you know, a suitor. Come to the door. Well, hello, Mrs. Lester. Is your daughter Siobhan home? Oh, great. Oh, Siobhan, you look beautiful. Brought you some flowers. Where do you want to go today? Right? Donuts. Always donuts. Siobhan. It's like, <clears throat> so off we go to donuts. And then I would take her to the car. I'd open the passenger door, set her in, get her seat filled in, make sure she's comfortable. And then we go where she wants to go. Do what she wants to do. Eat what she wants to eat. Right? And then my conversation with her, it's all about her. Tell me about your day. What are you doing? How's theater? What are you reading? Right? It's not about, yeah, well, let me tell you about me. Right? And what I'm doing, and dads, what you're doing is teaching your daughter to discern the difference between a boy and a man. Because boys show up and they just lean on the horn. Hey, come on out, babe. We're going to go grab some some pepperoni from the market and maybe some uh, soda and some crackers and go just hang out by the river, right? Because that's what I want to do. And I want you to listen to me talk about myself (laughs) because I got a lot to say. No, 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 no. You want your daughter when that first pursuer comes up and honks the horn, just like drapes closed, door locks, lights go out. Sorry, buddy, (laughs) right? You are done. (laughs) All right, I better move on. Number two, he says, nurture them. Notice in verse four, he says, bring them up. Now, in the original Greek text, it's a single verb, and later, or earlier in Ephesians 5, verse 29, it's rendered nourishes, okay? The idea is that the Christian father is to nourish the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical well-being of his children. In other words, to do the things that are going to help their child grow spiritually, emotionally, and physically. In other words, our job as parents, again, as, as a father, is not just to bring them the bacon, no, no, it's more than just earning an income. It's investing in the lives of our children to mature them emotionally and spiritually. That can only happen by spending time with them. And I want to be really clear on this. There is no substitute for time together for any relationship. In a husband-wife relationship, in a parent-child relationship, 
Time together is what's most important. You don't even have to do anything expensive or anything extravagant. Just time together, quality time together is what your children want with you. Where you can build good and happy memories with them. Sharing in activities together, maybe working in a project together. Or for example, one of the greatest things you can do as a parent, take your children on a short-term mission trip where you get to do ministry together, right? Or even locally do ministry together. Uh, volunteer to, at a homeless shelter to feed the homeless, something where you're working together, building good memories, but not just doing something insignificant, doing something very significant in serving the Lord. And then, of course, we need to teach our children the word of God and then live what we say is true in front of their eyes. Friends, remember, as great as we have, as our Sunday school is, the Sunday school under Pastor Mark and the teachers there have our kids for one and a half hours a week. That is not sufficient to do the work that God is calling us to do in the lives of our children. No, we as parents, and especially dads, we need to take the lead in that, and especially raising them in the Lord. If you're not doing it, I would encourage you to make sure as a father that you are leading family devotions and prayer. One of our favorite things every night, the last thing that our children would ever hear is that before they fell asleep, we spent time with them. Uh, we would read together age appropriately. When they were little, we found that the Alice in Bible Land series was a great <clears throat> series of books that really put the scripture at their level. And then as they grew, we moved on and up and up and up as they could comprehend more. But we always incorporated the reading of God's word and then prayer and specific prayer for other people and for their own needs. And what we were doing there is modeling to them how we live as Christians, growing from his word, exercising our faith in prayer. And then we kept a record of God's answers to our prayers. Well, friends, that is one way to really, really build your children's faith in God as you pray as a family together for something and then see it come to pass. Wow, that is going to prepare them for having great faith in the Lord. Now, my daughter, our daughter, Siobhan, goes to church here. She's usually her first service. When you see her next time, ask her about the prayer we prayed when she was five years old for her lost stuffed puppy. <laughs> I wish I could tell you a story. It's a great story. Take too much time. I know you're hungry, so we'll move on. But nonetheless, at five years old, she learned that God is interested more than just the geopolitical ramifications of what's going on in the world. He even cares about a five-year-old who's lost their stuffed animal. Number three, discipline your children. As Paul's instruction here in verse 4 at the end, he says, bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, you might underline or highlight that word training. In the Greek, it means to instruct in both a positive and a negative way. In other words, that we are teaching lessons, life lessons, through constructive praise or through corrective discipline. In other words, training has either a positive fun benefit, or a negative, like, painful benefit, right? Now, we've just spent a lot of time talking about the positive, so let me deal with corrective discipline. And I take a deep breath, and I say <laughs> that I understand that what I'm about to say, I could get arrested for in California. Probably not, just, just joking, but uh, when you talk about corrective discipline in the state of California, you're not going to meet with a very receptive audience uh, in, in, among secular uh, psychologists. Uh, additionally, you'll find that even some Christians have different views about discipline. Uh, 
My encouragement is this. Hear me out. If you disagree, be a Berean. Go to the scripture, look at what the scripture says, take it to the Lord in prayer, let the Holy Spirit give you his answer. So I'm going to share with you what I believe the word says. Then I'm going to use some examples from the life that, uh, or from my experience raising three children, and leave it in your court to go to the Lord on it. Typically when people balk at any kind of corrective discipline, uh, they'll typically say, well, that's a bad thing because that's abusive to children. And of course, it's given with a lot of vitriol. I mean, it's like, they're almost spitting it out. And so by way of example, say, well, I was a child in a parochial school. I remember at five years old, I had to put my hand on the, on the desk and, my, and the nun came and beat my, my, my knuckles with, a, you know, with a, a, a ruler until they bled. That is not what the Bible's talking about, okay? That's abuse. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Or others will say, well, no, no, I had a friend and man, when he disciplined his kids, he would just pound them with his fist until they were black and blue. Again, that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about corrective discipline. Well, I knew a guy that, that when his children disobedient, he'd lock them in the closet for hours at a time. That's not what God is talking about. So let's put all that aside and let's talk about what does God mean? What does Paul mean when he says, train your child? And by train, both a positive and negative, and the negative meaning corrective discipline. Well, in Proverbs 23, verse 13 and 14, <clears throat> the author of Proverbs writes, don't fail to correct your children. In other words, you have an admonition from the Lord. Don't fail to correct your children. In other words, don't be like David and overlook their sins. And then the writer of Proverbs says, they won't die if you, okay, I'm going to say the word, try not to gasp, spank them. I know. I know. I can hear the sirens now, right? Just lock the doors, keep the police away until I'm done with the sermon. All right. Verse 14, physical discipline may well save them from death. True. The reason that spanking is effective and biblical is that children are born with a sin nature. <laughs> they are born self-centered, self-willed, and rebellious. And oftentimes, children will not respond to timeouts, no matter how much time out they have. They will not respond at four years old to reasonable arguments that you present that they don't understand. They will not respond to, you have to sit down and write a hundred times, I will not sin, I will not sin, I will not sin. No, there are times and there are children that need physical discipline. As the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 22, verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction that is spanking will drive it far from him. And the writer of Proverbs, when he says foolishness, isn't talking about being silly right? Like giggling and all of that. No, what he means there in foolishness in the original language is foolishness expressed in self-willed, sinful rebellion against God. So let me put some flesh and bones on it. Let me give you an example. Our oldest son, Sean, when he was, <clears throat> I think, four, uh, already very athletic. Uh, he grew up to be a very athletic guy, scouted by the White Sox right out of high school, six foot four, left-handed pitcher, 91 mile an hour fastball, knuckle curveball. He was just naturally gifted as an athlete. 
Well, at four years old, you could already see it. He could run and jump and, you know, parkour off the fence and all that. And so we got him a bicycle with training wheels to start, a little tiny little bike and all that, and we let him ride around our backyard, you know, because there's a big paved area there. So ride around, ride around. And then came the day when we opened the gates to the driveway. And so there was instruction. We set him down and we talked to him. Sean, you are now able to ride on the driveway and on the sidewalks in front of our house, but you may never... And you may not ride on the street unless mommy or daddy are here with you to make sure that it is safe. Do you understand? Yes, mommy. Yes, daddy. If you disobey and you ride on the street, we are going to spank you. Do you understand? Yes, mommy. Yes, daddy. Repeat that back. If I ride in the street, you'll spank me. Got it. Good. All right. We go in the house. He rides right in the street. <laughs> like, really? It's like, really? I mean, Yes. Why? Because he had a strong sin nature, like all of us. And Sean needed to know and understand that willful disobedience will bring painful consequences. Not because we disliked him, not because we hated him, not because we took joy in spanking him, but because we cared enough about him that we didn't want him run over by a car. And in our neighborhood, we were the second car, or the first house from the corner, and people just come around that corner, you know, you know, trying to drift, Tokyo drift, right? They would never see a four-year-old on a bike. It's like, boom, you're done. All these guys are in four-by-four trucks, and this one guy had an army truck they drove through the neighborhood, like full-on, you know, 18 feet off the ground. You're not going to see a four-year-old. Sean, if you drive right in the street, you're going to get killed. We love you too much to allow that to happen. So there's a spanking coming. Well, as much as I hated spanking him, and I know it's cliche, you probably remember your parents saying, it hurts me more than it hurts you. But the reality, moms and dads, we know it does hurt more to discipline our children. Let me segue from that for a minute. I have a friend back in Arkansas, big old boy. Uh, He... uh, I think, he, I think he liked the taste of blood. I mean, he just one of those guys, like, if you hit him in the face, you go, hmm, that's good, right? We were, in, we were in downtown Atlanta one time, and four guys followed us into the restroom to, to jump us, like, to, to rob us. And this guy just turned around, looked at him, put his hands on his hip, cracked his knuckles, said, all right, let's get it on, boys. And these four grown men ran as fast as they could the opposite direction. This is a big dude. I mean, in any event, he had a daughter that did not respond to any form of discipline, right? Not timeouts, not reasonable arguments, not writing a hundred times, I will not sin, not spanking. And so one day she had just been a completely awful young girl and she's probably eight or nine at this point. And he said, now, honey, normally you know the punishment, right? What's the punishment? You're gonna spank me again, right? This attitude, you're gonna spank me again. It doesn't hurt me, it doesn't bother me. And I think inspired by the Holy Spirit said, you know what? then you're going to spank me. And he literally handed her the belt and got down on his knees and it broke her. Because the reality is as much as, as much as people hate to be disciplined, those who have to implement the discipline, it's so much harder. Now, I look at people I grew up with, family and friends, who you could kind of make as a case study, our family, their family. Same number of kids, same church environment, same kind of everything. We disciplined, they did not and their kids are a wreck. I'm thinking of one particular example where two of the three children will not even speak to their parents as adults and haven't in years. And I invite you to talk to our daughter. She's here as a part of our fellowship. I invite you to talk to our boys. They live in Arkansas. I will give you their phone numbers. 
I got a text between services from our younger son who watched and said, great study, Papa Bear. He said, I put, uh, uh, I, I said, he was following on, on Facebook our sermon. And so he put right there in the comments, he said, it's true, exclamation point. <laughs> Call our kids, 38, 36, 34 years old, they'll tell you. All three walking with the Lord. All our kids went to college. All are leading productive lives. All our kids love to be with us. My oldest son, Sean, 38 years old, you know, big old bushy beard, a man's man, smokes meat, you know, all that stuff. He's like Duck Dynasty, whatever. Calls me every day just to talk. Just to talk because he wants to talk to his dad. Our house was the house that all the kids in the neighborhood wanted to come to. Because they knew it was safe, it was secure, that they were, they were going to be loved. And that they were going to, to be dealt with honestly. If they were bad, I mean, we didn't discipline other people's kids. But we were firm and we had rules. And those same kids today who are firefighters and policemen and in the military and teachers and doctors and lawyers, whatever, they still tell my kids, oh, man, I love your mom and dad. Tell your mom and dad, hi, man, I so miss, you know, being able to come to their house. Because when you care enough to do the hard things, it creates an environment where there's safety and the kids know it. And then, friends, perhaps most importantly, our children need to know that when they grow up, that their heavenly father will discipline them and bring pain in their life if, if his grace will not draw them to repentance. I think by way of example of <clears throat> Paul's example of 1 Corinthians 5, where he writes to the church in Corinth that they've got a guy in the fellowship sleeping with his stepmother. The church is all like, wow, praise God, grace. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You get that guy out of the fellowship. And Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, I have committed such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. Now, destruction of flesh is a nice way of saying dead. Whoa. <laughs> the apostle Paul committing a believer in Christ to the discipline of the Lord that might result in somebody's death? Yeah. Ananias and Sapphira, right? Oh, I have a friend, if you want to hear this story sometime, a pastor friend of mine went against the Lord, and Lord, the Lord judged him, and he died, like dead, dead, dead. And his wife was a nurse. I'm, looking at the, I'm, looking, I'm literally reading the autopsy. There's no physical reason, no physiological cause. My husband should be alive. He's dead. Why? Disobedient to the Lord. And when you don't respond to God's grace, he can discipline us. And our children need to know that. They learn it from us so that when they get big and can make big, big, bad mistakes, they don't do that. God says in Deuteronomy 8.5, he says, you should know this in your heart. As a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. The author of Hebrews writes, 12.6, for whom the Lord loves, and again, it's all motivated by love, whether from the Lord or from parents, as you, you and I as parents, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges, again, King James way of saying spanking, every son whom he receives. Again, the Lord's grace is not sufficient to bring us to repentance. He knows how to get the paddle out. Now, having said all that, I don't want to send you home to get the biggest belt you can find or, <clears throat> you know, like a, a, some kind of a, you know, a axe handle or something to break your kids. No, <laughs> spanking doesn't mean abuse. So let me give you some brief parameters. Number one, we only discipline when a child is willfully disobedient. In other words, if your four-year-old comes home from preschool and drops the F-bomb, and they, you know they haven't heard it from you, right? 
you don't start spanking them. No, no, you need to do a little research. Like, hey, honey, that's a new word. Where, where'd you hear that, right? Oh, from your friend Billy, right? Well, listen, that's actually not a good word, right? And you use it as an opportunity to instruct. Now, once they know it's a bad word and they use it, now they've willfully disobeyed, now you can discipline. But if they don't know, you cannot discipline when it's not a willful, disobedient act. Number two, you never discipline when you're angry. No, no, no. You have to be under the control of the spirit and motivated by love before you implement discipline. And then when it's time to discipline, you always explain to the child why they're being disciplined so they understand the relationship between the sin and the consequence for the sin. And then after you've administered discipline, you're going to express love and forgiveness, and then it's done. Just as our Heavenly Father forgets our sins as we ask for forgiveness, never brings it to mind again. So as parents, we never bring it to mind again. It's been washed away. It's been done. I don't have time to get into all of it, but I would suggest if you were a parent this morning who needs direction, the greatest resource I could recommend is a tiny little book called Spanking a Loving Discipline by Roy Lesson. Spanking a, a Loving Discipline by Roy Lesson. Biblical, practical, filled with good instruction. Well, finally, and we'll close with this, Paul says, teach them. Look at the end of verse 4. Not only are we to train our children, he says, and in the admonition of the Lord. Now, I need to point this out. It's admonition, not abomination, <laughs> right? <clears throat> our children are an abomination. No, no, we, it's an admonition. In other words, the word admonition there means to teach, to instruct, and to call attention to. And the distinction that Paul's making between the word training that he used, which is kind of on a, on a physical sense, here where he says admonition, he's saying be sure to use words to communicate truth, to help your children to grow up and to mature as good and godly men and women. In other words, part of raising a child involves more than just activity. It involves our words, verbal communication. By way of example, I think of the book of Proverbs. You go back and read Proverbs 1. It's written by a father to his children. To do what? To express words of wisdom, divinely inspired, to help a young man or a young woman learn how to please God how to avoid sin, how to live in such a way that you're going to be blessed, how to prosper in life, how to work hard, how to set priorities, all of the things a young man or young woman needs to know in order to be successful in life. So again, it's not just enough to show them, you also tell them, and that reinforces in their heart and mind what it means to be a godly man or woman of God. So if we invest our time speaking to our children, ensuring the wisdom that they need, and by the way, that wisdom comes from this book, they're going to listen, and as they watch us live it out, they're going to learn, and they'll model that in their lives. Well, in closing, moms and dads, grandparents who may have children under your care, it is our job as a Christian to impart a Christian worldview into the heart and minds of our children. Do not leave the raising and the training of your children to our public school system especially the public school system in California. Now, we have some wonderful godly teachers in the public school, but most often their hands are tied in terms of being able to do what they really want to do. So I'm not saying they're bad people or that it's bad to be in the public schools. What I'm saying is the policies of our public education system is antichrist. And I mean that. It's antichrist. 
because the foundation of what your children are going to learn in the public schools is based on a godless, naturalistic, humanistic worldview. And if those are fancy words to you, let me just explain it. What it means is that the education you're going to get from preschool through graduate studies in the public school system in America is a worldview that says there's nothing outside this box. All that exists is matter. And the matter that we see around us is just randomly formed into people or planets, but there's no purpose at all in it. There is nothing beyond it. In other words, there's no open system. There's no realm of the spirit. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no God. Our kids need to know that God is real, that he loves us, that he loves them, and that he created us and them with a purpose and plan. Let me illustrate the the, the distinctions between those two worldviews just to really, really put some, uh, to, you know, to put some flesh and bone on it. Naturalism tells your child that he or she is a product of chance. As such, your child in the naturalistic, humanistic, Darwinian worldview says they have zero intrinsic value. In other words, they're just an accident of random chance. They have no purpose in life because, again, they're an accident of random chance and there is no hope for the future. Well, if that's ingrained in you from kindergarten through graduate studies, no wonder people have a real difficult time seeing that they have any value in life or can offer anything to anyone else or do anything to impact the world for good because they've been told they don't mean anything, they have no value, they're not significant, there's no purpose, there's no future. Now think about the Christian worldview. Huh. Oh, no, you're telling your child, you, honey, were created in the very image of God. What? <laughs> yes. You were created with a unique purpose by which you alone can express that image of God in a unique way that no one else of these 8 billion people on planet Earth can do. You're special. You're unique as God created you. You have purpose in life because you can choose to share in God's great plan of redemption by sharing the gospel with your friends at school and your teachers and with your neighbors. And when you grow up one day, be able to serve the Lord in whatever direction he calls you. And you have hope for the future. That is that this world is not your home. You're just passing through and there is a new heaven, a new earth that is so glorious, so beyond our ability to understand that the apostle Paul could not put pen to paper to even describe it. And when John was commanded to do so in the revelation, he said, uh, it's like, and he uses the word like over and over and over again to try to describe the things that he's experiencing and seeing because it's so far beyond what anyone could imagine. And so it's imperative that we speak to our kids about God teach them about what the Bible says about life and godliness, and then live it before their eyes so that they might grow up to be the man and the woman of God that he has planned them to be. So friends, harm in your family. If you've got children, children, obey your parents. It's the right thing to do. God commands it, and it brings a blessing. Parents, mommies and daddies, express your love for your children by not provoking them to wrath, by nurturing them, discipling them, and teaching them. And if you do, then you have a great, great, great promise that God is going to do something wonderful in their lives and in your life as well because your children will want to be with you. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, this morning we've covered a lot of territory. 
And Father, I would guess that for some people it's been stretching, perhaps for some a bit corrective, and for others an encouragement. And Lord, as I prayed at the beginning, I pray that whatever it is that we need to receive this morning from you, that we would open our ears to receive your word, to allow it to be implanted in our heart and watered by your spirit to produce the fruit that you desire. And so, Lord, if we need to make changes in the way that we run our home, Lord, give us that direction and then grant us the grace and the faith to do it. Lord, if we need encouragement in our life this morning, just to know that we're doing exactly what you've called us to do and that we need to just keep on doing it and that we will see good fruit, then, Lord, I pray that we'd receive that encouragement. And finally, Father, I pray that you would do what we cannot do, and that is to restore families that are broken that you would bring the prodigals back, that, Lord, you would turn the hearts of fathers to their sons and the hearts of sons to their fathers, that you would create within our fellowship strong and healthy and beautiful families that could be a picture of your great love for this world that our neighbors and our family and friends would be envious of, and, Lord, that would be a calling card for you and your love for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work these miracles in our lives by your power and by your strength. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.